Hello and welcome to Comics Over Time. This season, which we're calling Murdoch and Marvel, a history of Marvel Comics starring Daredevil, is our most ambitious project yet. Our plan is to look at the state of the comic book industry during a particular year, and then to examine in detail the major ways that Marvel Comics in particular evolved during that year. We'll look at who was creating comics, what new characters or storylines were introduced, and which comics either debuted or ended. After that, we'll get down to business, take out our stack of Daredevil comics, and look at what our old friend, the man without fear, was up to during that same time. We're glad you've joined us. My name is Dwayne, and with me as always, my good buddy Dan. Dan, how's it going today? Absolutely great. So... Those of you out there didn't notice it, but we've been gone for a couple weeks because we recorded one early, and so it's been a while since we've had a chance to talk comics, and I'm excited to get back into it. When last we left all of you, it was 1965. Daredevil had just uh, sort of been swinging around for his, his first year. 1966 is the topic this week, and this is sort of a an interesting year. Some people say it's the most 1960s of all the years in the 60s. Uh, you saw America sort of sinking deeper into the realization of what was going on in Vietnam as war deaths for Americans actually tripled from 1966 to or 1965 to 66. You saw a little bit of sort of a conservative reaction to what had been going on with the civil rights movement and other things starting to happen, including Reagan being elected governor out in California. We had technological advances, a lot of things going on in the space program. The first artificial heart surgery was performed as well. In pop culture, it was a huge year. On television, you've got both Star Trek and the Batman TV show premiering, which, how huge is that in terms of an effect on popular yeah. culture for geeks, right? Goodness. Beach Boys released their Pet Sounds album, which was sort of a a break for them from the beach tunes that they've been doing and kind of more into the the late 60s psychedelic type of stuff and a lot of other American acts followed them with that. And then out on the Daredevil front, this is our hero entering really his first full-on publication year in that we actually have 12 issues of Daredevil that Dwayne gets to revel in and talk to you about. Yes, this was, this was the first of... Uh a full slate of books and so i had a lot of lot to choose from from the spotlight but i'm really excited to talk about uh the end of 1966 a little bit later on but i know before we do that we we have to talk we got some uh some messages on on social media and stuff this this last week and actually it was in between weeks when we had recorded early right after the 1964 uh, episode yep. and so Dan tell us a little bit about that yeah it was it was noted by Sid out on uh, on Blue Sky that I may have misspoken on, on one or two character names this is something that's probably going to happen uh, because we're speaking off the cuff here a little bit but cool that he caught that and noted that I had my giant man reference incorrect uh, as we sort of joked about out there normally when someone uh has a gaff like that at Marvel back in these days, they would get a no prize. So I have I have not sent the no prize for him. Any of the rest of you out there who are listening, if you catch me in 
something where I'm I'm mistaken or you feel I'm outright lying to Dwayne about something or to you, feel free to send us a note and correct me on that. Uh, it is, there's a lot out there, man, and I am, I am trying to warrant this as best I can, but mistakes it, will be made. It, it happens to the best of us. And yes, if you can if you catch me screwing up as well, feel free to uh, call me on it as well. That's, that's how we get better. We have notes, but sometimes uh, even the notes sometimes fail us because we've mistyped or something. Yep, that was fun. We also got to talk a little bit about um, Enemy Ace and how evidently he's over in Britain and they are kind of, you know, they, they thought of the World War One Aces as these gentlemen knights and the like, which I think in America we kind of did as well. The Snoopy Red Baron type of thing in a lot of these, there was always that. But there was a little bit of a darker edge to it with, with some of the stuff in America, I think. So it's interesting to see how different, different kind of cultures deal with that a little bit. Uh, and then... Also, just as a note, we did have out on Podbean, uh, T.D. Kong posted in, noting that he's been enjoying some of the back catalog, going back uh, through the Moon Knight stuff. So if any of you are reading back through or, or listening back through some of those, and you've got comments or questions, we still have the, the bat phones, the Moon Knight phones, open yes, for any questions whatever, whatever on that you as would, well. Whatever you want to call so, that, that, that yeah. device, it's... Uh, but yeah, great to hear from everybody. So uh, we appreciate the comments. And then also, if you know somebody you think might be interested in some of this, um, sending them a note to, to give it a try or whatever, we would appreciate that. It's been interesting seeing a lot of the listening numbers go up the last few weeks. And that's very, very kind of cool. But I uh, certainly want to keep it going. So The Year in Comics. Dwayne, this is such a fantastic year of comic books. I mean, there are so many things going on, not just with Marvel, but with all sorts of other companies. It's interesting, too, because like we talked about last year, this is the, this is the year when Batmania hits. So I think the first thing to talk about in the year in comics is that in early 1966, the Batman TV show debuts. It's a huge hit. Everybody's watching the Batman TV show. It it got like 50% shares in its time slot. And it debuts early in the year. And then by the last part of the year, they're already putting out season two. Because not only was it popular, but ABC, the, the network it was on, was so hapless at the time that they literally had nothing else to put on. So all of the Batman shows initially, you know, they had the cl the cliffhanger when you watch uh -huh. them. Yep. Well, that, they did those where it was twice a week. So you would see the first half on like Tuesday, and then you'd turn back, tune back in Wednesday for the end of the cliffhanger. So you didn't even have to wait a week or anything like that. They had all of the episodes planned as like two nights because ABC had nothing else to put on. <laughs> and they did the same That's thing great. in the fall. But it meant that there was just this saturation of Batman. The weird thing is, and this is something that I want to talk about in our takeaway, that there's always a danger for comics whenever we pop our head up high enough that popular culture takes notice. Because what 
long-time dedicated comic fans want out of comics and what the rest of America or the world wants out of comics can be wildly different things, right? Yes, I think we're seeing that now, especially with uh, the things going on. 100%. And it's interesting because when you're looking at what Batman was going into 1966 you'd actually had dc trying to get rid of the campy batman the kids batman had tried to make the stories a little bit more uh, i wouldn't say adult but a little bit more at least adolescent right they were trying to get people to take batman more seriously because the fans wanted that sort of more serious batman and then batmania comes along and all of a sudden, the publisher's like, let's veer back this way, right? Because there's money to be made, and they want the comics to correspond to the TV show. He's saying that the Adam West Batman isn't, isn't the edgy Batman that they were trying to go for at that point? There is nothing <laughs> in the comics ever that has approached the level of not taking the character seriously that Adam West and that show did, Right. That I think the the thing about comics is that at a certain point, the characters always take themselves seriously, and we do. Right. But when they put it on television, the characters took themselves so seriously that it was obvious no one else could. (laughs) And it just caused some trouble. But so DC is doing a lot of stuff this year. Uh, Coming into 66, they are starting to reform the line they're getting more into superhero stuff they're starting to see that marvel is up to something and so they're actually starting to try and change the way that they do stuff what's crazy is though they're a little bit lost at this time as well because they're bringing out books like swing with scooter they're bringing out the inferior five which is essentially a parody of the fantastic four (laughs) great Uh, Oddly, the guy they hired was good enough at it. That the Inferior Five is actually a pretty darn entertaining comic book, but it was meant to just be sure. a slap in the face of, of, of Lee course. and Kirby. They bring out Plastic Man. They're doing a bunch of stuff with the, the Batman TV show vibe by the late part of the year. But coming into the year, they brought back the Spectre, with Gardner Fox and Murphy Anderson bringing that back, who's kind of this hero who's all about vengeance and the like. The Teen Titans got their start that year. We actually had the death of some major characters. Um, At least one. There was a a girl called Triplicate Girl in Legion of Superheroes. One of my favorite books from back in the day. Um, She was killed by Computo, the living computer. But only one third of her was killed, luckily. So she came back as Duo Damsel. But it's kind of of the... uh, the easiest death when you only that's, one third die, I guess. That's a little but weird, I have to say. <laughs> it is. Um, Jim Shooter makes his debut in Legion of Superheroes a little bit after that. He's actually 13 years old at the time. And he's like, I can write comic books better than what these guys are putting out. So to prove it, he writes one. He draws it in kind of this 13-year-old whatever. Sends it into the editor. The guy's like, yeah, I'll buy that. Eventually... Shooter is, like, writing multiple books for them every week, helping to support his family. They're like, we want you to come into the office so we can get you some training on how to do things the DC way. And he's like, ah, 
I don't know if I can get off school. And, and the other <laughs> asked something along the lines of, how old are you? He's like, well, I'm 14, because he'd turned 14 by that time. At which point, the guy evidently said something along the lines of, could you put your mother on the phone? And they worked <laughs> something out. Oh, goodness. But he was way too young to be a professional writer, obviously. So DC's got a lot going on at this point, but they're kind of still trying to find their footing in the new world. One of my favorite books, actually, from this time was Flash Gordon, number one. A fellow named Al Williamson, who's a magnificent illustrator, was hired by a comic company called King Comics, who'd gotten the license for Flash Gordon, which had been previously published uh, as a, like a daily serial or a, a weekly uh, newspaper serial. And he really liked the art style and the like from the originals. So he made this fantastic Flash Gordon comic that ended up winning all the awards for best book of the year. He gets artist of the year, everything like that. It's not a Marvel book. It's not a DC book. It's not actually by a company that really made much of an end at all. But it may have been the most beautiful comic book of the 1960s. Really? So, yeah. Interesting. Flash Gordon by Williamson is just astonishingly wonderful you look at it and go how is it possible that you could make comic books this good in the 60s but then we had you know batman from the 60s in the early <laughs> 60s which was not that good we also had things going on at other companies like charlton de crigiano we will see later again took over as the editor there ditko actually came in there after he left marvel and took over blue beetle Started working with some of that. Did some really neat stuff there. There's changes systemically. Uh, art boards previously were usually done at about twice the height of a comic. So it would be, well, it'd be, I suppose, like 12 by 20 or something like that. And Murphy Anderson wanted to try a slightly different size for something when he was doing some stuff for DC. He turned in 10 by 15 boards after he did that, the publishing company or the printing company said, hey, by the way, we can save you money now because we can fit four of them on at a time instead of like two or three. At which point DC said, oh, everybody's doing smaller <laughs> art now. Yep. And this is actually something that caused folks like Jack Kirby, because Marvel and others followed suit pretty quickly, caused them some trouble because they were used to working at a slightly larger size and had to now adapt their, their art. You'll find that in 66 and 67, there's actually some weird things going on with established comic artists because they're, they're constantly swearing at, uh, you know, the fact that they're working on smaller paper than they used to be. Murphy Anderson evidently got more than, more than one angry look when people saw him in the next couple of years. Um, again, in popular culture, besides the Batman movie TV show, there was a... It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman, Broadway musical that came out. Really? Yeah. Evidently flopped hard, lasted 100 <laughs> and some days, lost the producers over half a million dollars. It was evidently just a, an absolute disaster. That, that surprises me. I, I guess mm -hmm. I, I'd never heard of it before, but I guess the fact that it did not do well probably explains why I've never heard yeah. of the this you know a lot of people say there wasn't a ton in it that was really particularly memorable mm. uh. so other than that you know in the comic strip peppermint patty premiered this year 
uh, Wits End by Wally Wood, which was one of the first sort of independent comics, came out where he had a number of, of other high-end artists that he worked with. Uh, Barry Allen and Iris West got married in The Flash. So it was a busy year. Sounds sounds like it. Mm-hmm. So what about what about sales numbers? We usually talk about sales numbers a little bit during the year in comics. Where mm-hmm. what does that look like for nineteen sixty six? Remember when Batman was going to get like canceled a couple of years ago? Well, not anymore. So <laughs> as of this one, according to Comicron, it was clearly the number one title for nineteen sixty six. Sold almost 900,000 copies. Superman and Superboy came in second at a little over 700, a little over 600. Again, almost all of the top books. Superman, Superboy, Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest, Action Comics, Adventure Comics, and Justice League. So eight of the top ten are Superman books. Batman and Archie at number seven are the only two of the top ten that don't feature Superman. Really? Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of crazy to see just how dominant that one character was. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, industry. it's. I know it's been a popular character for a very long time, but just like seeing this year after year where they were just this juggernaut of, yep. uh, uh, of sales across you know several different books with, you know, highlighting different characters and stuff. It, it's it's a bit surprising, I guess. Yeah, it also helps in in quotes that dell slash gold key have been going through restructurings and the like because for a long time a lot of those duck books and the the licensed stuff from dell would have you know been been sort of toppling them off the uh the mountain but with those gone right now and with superheroes getting more popular superman really really sort of took over that said, it wasn't as bad a year for Marvel as it had been, right? If you're looking at the chart we got here, Amazing Spider-Man at number 16. Well, I think 40 is about the highest we'd had as far as the uh, the charts before. Uh, Fantastic Four at 19, Thor at 23. Each of those coming in, though, at like 350,000, 325,000, 300,000. The best-selling, as far as what we know, the best-selling Marvel book is selling maybe a third of what the best-selling DC book is, sell, is, is selling. But it's still a substantial increase from where they were a year ago or two years ago. They, they have, have actually... The, the, they're on the same scale now, at least, before it was like yes. the drop in the proverbial bucket compared to the... To the, the other fish in the in the pond and and now it's you can actually see them on the map and and yep you could see that they're you know what they've been doing is making is making some headway and you could see how this this tide could be coming uh in yep. very short order absolutely that is correct so it was interesting but i think that that when you look at this year in comics it was a very interesting and varied year of publications and when you look at stuff like the williamson flash gordon you look at some of the stuff that uh that like ditko starts doing when he heads over to charlton there were a lot of things going on in comics which 
really sort of pointed the way to a very, very bright future for comic books. And nothing could go wrong in the next couple of years at all to mess with that. <laughs> so I, I, I do think that's... I, I feel some foreshadowing there. <laughs> there may be some foreshadowing. The This is a time, again, when comics have sort of begun to come into their own, gain some respect, but have not yet gotten enough notice that there's too much pressure on them to be something other than what they want to be. No. So I think when we look at the year in Marvel especially, what a fantastic year of comics. So we could talk a lot more about stuff outside, but I think this is a great year for Marvel that I'd actually like to, you know, really start focusing in on that. So unless you have any other questions about 1966 in the greater comics world, I think we uh, we could head on to that. Oh, let's let's move on. The year in Marvel. Excelsior! All right, Dan, you've got you've got me excited here. You're saying this is a big year for Marvel. I'm seeing a, a, a few of these notes here. What happened in 1966 at Marvel that has you so so excited to talk about it? I think that. The main thing about Marvel in 1966, when I started going back and really looking at it, is that they had been doing some interesting stories in the the years leading up to this. You had all these new characters coming out, all of this energy and everything. But the actual storytelling in 1966 is breathtaking. When you look at the fact that it's a, it's a very stable year. There's no new comics in the Marvel superhero universe. There's no ending comics in the Marvel superhero universe. The closest we have is that, that essentially Journey into Mystery becomes Thor with issue number 126. Essentially keeps the same character, right? Because Thor had right. been one of the featured characters in it. Mm-hmm. Um, for the most part, the creators remain the same through the year, although we're going to see at the end of the year there's a major fundamental change that happens and in two or three of their books fantastic four spider-man and thor specifically they just completely blow the roof off of comic books as we know them so to start with just to talk about the greater sort of ecosystem of what's going on they begin publishing reprints uh, more heavily. So we have fantasy masterpieces and Marvel superheroes reprint series that are beginning. The Marvel superheroes reprint actually was specifically tied in to a Saturday morning cartoon that Marvel had licensed out that was going oh. on. So they, they did that as a tie-in. Uh, Millie the Model Comics becomes just Millie the Model uh, this year. So they're changing down their names a little bit. You get the return of a bunch of creatures, or uh, you get the return of a bunch of characters. Red Skrull comes back. Turns out he's been in suspended animation since the forties. He has been essentially frozen away, just like Captain America. And now, really, twenty-five years later, he uh, he comes out of animation. There's that stinking Steve Rogers, and they start fighting again. <laughs> um, we get Batroc the Leaper. We get Claw. We get Ego the Living Planet. The Rhino. 
the High Evolutionary, uh, Maximus the Mad. He might have been around, but he goes mad. Uh, and supporting characters, we get Sharon Carter, we get Wyatt Wingfoot. Right. So, you know, things like even just deepening the story, like Fury. Nick Fury, we didn't know where he got his eye patch. We knew he had one now that he's working for S.H.I.E.L.D. He didn't have one when he was wandering around World War II. We find out that near the end of World War II, he actually uh, takes damage from a grenade, ends up needing the needing the eye patch. Uh, it is not a Flurkin related yeah, incident. That, that, so that that seems a bit more on brand for Nick Fury than than yeah. you know getting getting scratched by a a, a space cat. Yes, indeed. Yes, it does. So there's a bunch of things going on there, but really, what we want to talk about is three books. Uh, I want to talk about first off, just my favorite of these. I love Thor from this year because there are two stories that lead into each other that introduce us to Ego the Living Planet, which has got some just crazy Jack Kirby art, including a collage that he did for Ego that is just some of the craziest art he'd done uh, ever. And then the High Evolutionary Saga begins, where he goes and starts finding out about some of that. And that, of course leads into a lot of the warlock stuff and in fact i think i had you read some of these books back when we were getting ready for one of the guardians movies so they, they sound familiar yeah yep and so i loved those stories i think they were just absolute high concept science fiction at it's it's most brilliant and so the the first the first year of thor is some of my favorite Thor comics ever. And that was during 1966. More importantly, though, Spider-Man and Fantastic Four absolutely had some of their most important comics during this year. This is the the year where in, in uh, Amazing Spider-Man, you actually get the end of the Steve Ditko arc. So Ditko has been working essentially as the writer and the artist on Spider-Man for a long time. But over the last year, him and, and Stan Lee have gotten to the point they dislike each other so much or have such trouble communicating that they no longer talk at all about the plot or the story, even though one of them is writing and drawing it and the other is scripting it. So... Wow. At this point, Spider-Man is being written by Ditko just doing his own thing, writing up the story, drawing the story, putting in notes to Stan to tell him what's going on. And then Ditko would come into the office, give the art to Sal Brodsky, the production manager, who would pay him or issue him the the you know the the payment voucher or whatever. He'd give the pages to Stan and Stan would then script it. There are actually notable points during this time where things just don't make sense because Stan really doesn't actually know what's happening. Huh. But he's scripting it. Nonetheless, out of this, we get a storyline where Aunt May gets sick, essentially from radiation poisoning she got from a blood transfusion from Peter. He feels terrible about it because she's going to die because of the bad blood that she got from him. So he works with the lizard to get a cure 
They get the cure, but then somehow it gets stolen away by Doc Ock, and Spider-Man has to go retrieve it, ends up having a building fall on him, and he can't get out, and his aunt is going to die because he's laying there, unable to get to this formula that she needs. And eventually, over the course of, like, 31 to 33, like, three issues, this whole thing happens. In the end, he basically has to lift the whole building off him and say... I'm not going to let this happen to my aunt the way I let it happen to my uncle. He gets it, he saves her, everything else. And then we kind of, Ditko moves off onto other things. Wow. It is a absolutely fantastic storyline. And I'm not a big fan of the Ditko Spider-Man as much as some people are. I never, I never got into it that much. I really do love these issues. I think that the, the 1966 Spider-Mans are... Absolutely just fantastic stuff. Interestingly, though, it's not just that. We also then, later on in that, have the introduction of a new artist and a new direction. And one thing that I think is intriguing is that you'd think that losing Ditko, who everybody talks about as the visionary behind Spider-Man and everything, would cause the whole thing to crash down. Instead... Ramada comes on, John Romita or Senior comes in, Stan Lee's still scripting it, and the book sales go through the roof. Partly because it seems like even though Ditko is doing really interesting stuff, it wasn't maybe as accessible to a larger audience as some of the stuff that Lee and Romita are now doing. Uh, but I've always found that kind of interesting, but it is evidently that was a point, even though. Everybody loves all of that Ditko art and those stories. Starting with the late 30s and onward, because Ramita draws everybody like they're a movie star, basically, it got more and more difficult to keep making it seem like Peter Parker was this nerd when he looked like a matinee. Idol, <laughs> right? So he started getting more friends and he started getting cooler and he gets to meet Mary Jane, and suddenly life's looking up. And evidently for a lot of kids, that that vision of, you know, riding along with the kid whose life is not quite as miserable uh, actually worked for them. So other things that happened, Flash Thompson got drafted. As noted, we had the, the famous, um, near the end of the year, the famous scene where Peter Parker meets Mary Jane at the door, she says, you know, face it, Tiger, you've hit the jackpot. Um, Norman Osborn is actually revealed as the Green Goblin here. That had been a, a mystery for a long time they'd led up to. So a lot went on in Spider-Man uh, this season, this, this year. That said, it's still probably by far the second most important run of books from 1966. you got to be kidding me. <laughs> what could tie that? Fantastic Four was truly fantastic. Like, this is the point where it was the the world's greatest comic magazine. Because over the space of those issues, starting in... So, the issues for 1966 for Fantastic Four would have been from issue number 46 to issue number 57. And during this time, you're going to have the introduction of Galactus and the Silver Surfer, in a three-part story that 
we'll talk about it a little bit, but many people say it actually changed the trajectory, the trajectory of comics. You have the introduction of the Black Panther, the first sort of black hero in the Marvel Universe, uh, in a story that uh, went on over a couple of, of different stories. You have all sorts of just one after another magnificent storylines uh, that just blow you away. You know, after you get done with the the big story from the Galactus storyline, then they have one that's just this deeply personal one about a guy who takes over the thing's body, like becomes the thing, and he's going to go and kill off Reed Richards. But okay. then he gets there, because he doesn't like Richards, he gets there, sees what the Fantastic Four actually does, and he's like, you know... I'm not going to kill him. I'm going to sacrifice <laughs> my own life saving him instead. And so, you know, kind of something that I think Endgame could have learned from, that when they got big, and really the Galactus saga would have been almost like the Endgame of the initial stage of the Marvel Universe, right? Because that was, Earth is being threatened and the only ones who can save it are the Fantastic Four. And when they finished up, they went to this very deeply personal small storyline and then they moved into new stuff bring in the panther or whatever but these these books from probably the 50s and 60s are the point where lee and kirby really just hit their stride where they are in full control of everything you know, the early fantastic four books are cool they're introducing new ideas and whatever else but these are the books that really are just two people at the absolute top of their form you can you can go in and you know we've been reading a lot of older 60s comic books i think you could go in and read these fantastic fours from this time and see a, a marked difference in terms of the quality based off of some of the other stuff that we've been seeing or even the daredevils and the like we're reading right now uh they were just at another level they really were but the interesting thing about four, FF 48 to 50 is that it was a three-part story and the way the story actually was told, the way that it ended with these cliffhangers, with the big final page, uh, page splash and everything else, was fundamentally different from anything that had ever been tried before. You would have multi-part stories, but they would always have like a, a partial resolution and then there'd be things that would need to continue on. Even like kind of our Kazar story uh, in this one, where you kind of got some, some things tied up, but then it continued on into the next one. This was literally a massive introduction of a new character at the very end, and you had no idea what was going on. <laughs> and it was, it was a true cliffhanger. But the way they told those stories became almost a template for other people later on. So... Looking at sort of the the comic world, not just Marvel, but comics as a whole, pre-FF 48 to 50 and post-FF 48 to 50 is something a number of people have identified as fundamentally different spaces. There was a tipping point there that yep. some you you can you can see before and after a, a market yep. difference. That's really it interesting. Just, they, they found, they kind of unlocked a new code in terms of how to do multi-part storytelling. And these would be the guys to do it because they'd now been working for, you know, 
five years doing this, building this month-to-month continuing universe. And now they're starting to, to really refine that approach and figure out how to do it best from issue to issue. So, so yeah, they, they changed the whole world. And then a couple months later, they decide it's time to bring in a new character. They want to bring in a black superhero. The initial designs for the character are actually much like Captain America. He's got the half cowl and you can see his face. They realized, or at least some people warned, that they might not be able to sell them in some parts of America if you had a character who was obviously black. So they gave him the full body covering so that then, even though inside he would take his mask off and you'd know that he's a black king, you know that he's from Africa, um, on the actual cover they'd be able to show the character and not worry about having people pull it off the, uh, the rack without ever opening it. So kind of odd they're also introducing other characters like Wyatt Wingfoot a Native American character is introduced in um in in Fantastic Four around this time as a friend of Johnny Storms from college and there are a number of tales that said that really Stan Lee is working at this point to even try and convince his artists that they should be drawing some black folks into the backgrounds and the like and that's something I'd encourage you to look at as we move along here is seeing how often you just see folks of different ethnicities anywhere in the comics back in the 60s. Because especially in this stuff from the early 60s, it's relatively uncommon. Uh, There's an awful lot of white folks in a country that was, you know, at least 15 plus percent not white. Yeah. Yeah. But but so yeah, the, the Fantastic Fours from this era... If, if you had time and, you know, you need a break from Daredevil, going back and reading some of the FFs from the early 40s and, and 50s uh, are well worth it. Well worth it. The only other thing to note about this that I think is very important is we have two big problems at the end of this. Steve Ditko gets tired of the way he's being treated at Marvel and leaves, not only leaving uh, along Spider-Man, but also just completely leaving the company. So we no longer have any any Ditko art uh, on Spider-Man or anywhere in these books. And near the middle or so of 1966, there's an interview with Jack Kirby and Stan Lee in their office, which, when the interview is published, ends up making Stan Lee look like he's the genius and Jack Kirby look like he could just basically be a janitor who's hanging around and getting part of the credit. Oh, gosh. And it went really badly. Uh, Roy Thomas was there, and he says he doesn't think that it was necessarily Stan's fault, because Stan and, and Jack were both there. It's just what the guy wrote ended up being really um, biased in terms of, of standum, I guess you'd call it. And so, <laughs> yeah. And so this, though, really did in many ways a lot of folks think lead to the fracturing it kind of like the tipping point for the relationship between lee and kirby at which point kirby started getting angrier and angrier about the way he was treated and the way he was perceived and that led into more concerns about money and credit and everything else so unfortunately 66 is a high point it also is the uh the point when the the band starts to show its fractures. And, yeah. Uh, outside of that, though, 
We had a bunch of people working at Marvel this year. Stanley still had the most credits with 157. Kirby at 105 came close. And when you think of how much different it is trying to write a book or draw the book, man, is Kirby doing That's, a lot of work. Right yeah, now. he's doing you know? a lot of heavy lifting. Then you had Simic and Rosen, um, lettering and coloring stuff. Goldberg doing production work and other stuff. Ditko was on 48 credits, a lot of that being writing and drawing for Spider-Man. But Dick Ayers, Bill Everett had returned uh, after being out for a while. Uh, he'd, he'd left after trying to do Daredevil and not being able to keep up with the schedule. And then when it was apparent that comic books were hot again, he's like, hey, how about <laughs> I come back and bring back my Submariner character from the 40s? And they said, yeah, let's do it. This is another thing. Stanley did not seem to hold a lot of grudges, and he loved getting people in. So Everett had failed him horribly, and when it was time to bring him back, he's like, yeah, come on back, let's just do some stuff. Gene Colan was working for them, Vinny Coletta, Romita, of course, and then a bunch of other folks, Heck, Thomas, Sinnott, all coming in with credits as well. Uh, there's more people working there than there were a few years ago by far, so the credits have spread out a little bit. It's not just a few people working themselves to death. Uh, but it's uh, it's interesting to see how it's all spread out. Probably a good thing for those people because yeah, some of the Almost some of the certainly. the amount of work that they were putting in seemed gargantuan yep. in scope. It is ridiculous. Let's talk about your rookie of the year. Who are who are some of the new creators that that joined Marvel this year, and and who are you giving the Rookie of the Year award to for 1966? So I looked into this using the Grand Comic Database as a source again, and I found six people who had their first modern Marvel credit who were folks I wanted to talk about. There's a few others, too, that just had a credit or two, uh, or who actually died in World War II, meaning that their credits were actually from reprints and so I've tried to remove those as best I can uh, sure. so that because they're not quite the same. We had uh, in an in increasing order of, of number of books uh, for the year. Flo Steinberg was credited in a couple. She actually was Stan's secretary, was the one who answered all of those crazy, crazy Marvel Marching Society letters and had to take the dollars out and respond to people and was unbelievably popular in the office. Like the number of creators who just loved flow is legion everybody talked about her as somebody who just made it you know stan made it a pain coming into the office sometime and flow made it great coming into the office she left in 1968 after not getting something like a five dollar raise that she'd want i think that's five dollars a week not an hour in case you're wondering. <laughs> um and later actually ended up coming back into comics and even published her own book uh, big apple comics sometime in the 70s so she was somebody who in many ways helped to start the alternative comics sort of uh, movement uh, not underground comics not mainstream comics but those true alternative comics she was one of the ones who started in it uh, we had steve steve skeets who did a lot of other stuff he did however in plastic man create carrot man who i used to really enjoy um he, he did a lot of humor stuff, not a lot Marvel. We have Gil Kane, who started this year. He'd been around for a long time. He actually designed the modern Green Lantern and the modern Atom costumes for National slash DC. 
With Marvel, he drew the anti-drug issues with Stan Lee, which were the first modern books to not run the code for Marvel. He drew the Death of Gwen Spacey book. He was a co-creator of Iron Fist, Morbius, and Manwolf. Uh, Guy is one of my all-time favorites. I have a piece of his original art uh, from one of his uh, or- original uh, projects hanging on my wall. One of my more treasured comics memorabilias. Uh, Gil Kane's the man. He did a lot more for DC than he did for Marvel, though. So, huh? Jack Abel was an inker who worked for quite a long time. Uh, did, did quite a bit of stuff. Uh, but, again, Gil Kane's a Hall of Famer. He went in in 1997. The last two people we'll talk about are Hall of Famers. So, Abel, probably not our Rookie of the Year here. Um, Denny O'Neill, he started this year, uh, his first work for Marvel. Again, this is a guy who in his Batman stuff with Neil Adams, in his Green Lantern, Green Arrow stuff with Neil Adams, he truly redefined modern comics. Denny O'Neill is one of my favorite all-time creators. Oh, he didn't do as much work with Marvel as with some others, but he was with Marvel for a long time. He did a lot of work on Iron Man, a lot of work on um, Power Man and Iron Fist. He wrote a lot of Daredevil books. So this is a guy who spent many, many years uh, working in comics. He did have a substantial history, you know, Amazing Spider-Man. He wrote all this sort of stuff as well. The last book, or the last person we have is Jim Steranko, who had an incredibly short career. Uh, actually started in 1966 and went to 1970 with just occasional work uh, for Marvel until 1973, after which he was essentially done. So his entire comic career is basically less than 100 issues. Probably, I would say, maybe half that, in fact. But he worked on the S.H.I.E.L.D. books, uh, the Nick Fury Man from S.H.I.E.L.D. uh, type of books, or Nick Fury... uh, Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., it was called. And although he didn't do a lot of stuff, what he did really did leave a mark. Because this was a guy who came in with a new art style, a more modern style, kind of almost a you know mod type of thing, where it was very psychedelic, very 60s. And those books, those S.H.I.E.L.D. books at that time, looked different than anything else. He's also famed for having written a story that had no words uh, back in the day for, for Marvel. And he brought it in. It was basically Nick Fury sneaking into this place. And the whole story was there. And it was really cool, but it had no words. And when he put it in, they said, we can't pay you for writing this because there's no words. And he's right. like, but I wrote the story. It's all there. And yeah, but there's no words. He's like, I will tear this up and you're not getting any of it if you don't pay me for, for both. And they, they haggled through it and he, he did win. But it was interesting how they tried to basically find a way to screw over the, the creator at any, at any way back in those days. So I love all of these guys. I think that for me, just because of the longevity of what he did, even though Gil Kane was not at Marvel for a large part of his career. Those anti-drug issues, the death of Gwen Stacy storyline, the fact he's got numerous characters that he was involved in the creation of who've been big. You know, like Iron Fist has his own Netflix show. 
that sort of stuff. Morbius has his own, you know, abs- terrible celebrated, movie. <laughs> celebrated feature movie, right? Uh, uh-huh. He's going to have to be probably our, uh, our rookie of the year. I'm also biased here because I love Gil Kane. I've, I've always been a huge fan. I do think there would be people who would say that Steranko, even though he has a very short uh, career, what he did fundamentally changed Marvel's style in some ways, in a way which really did have a lasting legacy as well. So I would not, I would not argue against somebody who says Steranko should get it, but if if I get to give the award, I'm giving it to Gil Kane. The year in Daredevil. All right, Dwayne. Now that we've talked about comics in the in the greater sense and comics at Marvel, it's time for you to uh, bring us up to date on what Daredevil was up to this year. So let's see what our man's been doing. Yeah, so Daredevil this year comprises the main Daredevil series from issues 12 to 23. He also had two appearances outside of that. Amazing Spider-Man Annual number three and the Amazing Spider-Man number 43. In the main series, we actually had two different um, artists across these books. Through issues 12 through 19, we had John Romita, uh, senior, uh, drawing those books. And then starting in issue 20, we had Gene Colan join the books and, it, and it's interesting because in book 20 they specifically call out the fact that they have a new artist because john romita has gone on to uh work on spider-man so he uh he, he he as you talked about he ended up doing a lot of good uh, for spider-man but he he started off the year uh with our man daredevil yep and uh and as a note he uh Remita, Remita, Remita Jr. was born in 56. So this would have been John Remita Sr. even at the time, in case you were wondering. So there you yeah, go. It's, it's okay to call him that. All right. Uh, as far as the year goes, there was more multi-book story arcs this year than we saw before. Obviously, because they had 12 books this year, they, they could continue a story and have it go longer uh, than, than just one book. You know, if you remember last week when we left off, uh, Daredevil Matt Murdock had decided he was going to leave New York, and we find out what's happening with him. He leaves New York via a cruise, and that cruise ends up getting boarded boarded by pirates, and his kid, and he ends up being kidnapped to the Savage Lands, where he ends up befriending Kazar and his saber toothed tiger Zabu. Also happening yes. this month, we, we had references to Daredevil and Spider-Man's first team-up way back in Spider-Man number 16 during during an issue, issue 15, when Spider-Man shows up and, uh, and is around Daredevil. And in, spec- and in fact, in that issue, Spider-Man actually comments about the fact that there's been some changes to Daredevil's costume. So I love the fact that they made costume changes and then they talked about it in the actual in the actual book where the characters actually noticed it. Yep. Absolutely love that. So a big part of this year actually was 
the fact that Foggy Nelson decides that he's going to impersonate Daredevil as a way to impress Karen Page. And all I can say is when this happens, hilarity ensues because it is just the yes. absolute most ridiculous things. And it, and it goes across several, several books. We it, it starts with Foggy going as far as buying a Daredevil costume from a just this random store, you know, costume store owner who turns out to be the gladiator who uses this as an opportunity to show off what he's capable of as as a, a big bad villain. Though I will say Foggy does sort of redeem himself a little bit during this because at one point the real Daredevil does come to his aid to try and save him, ends up about to being about to get shot, and Foggy does come to Daredevil's aid and and stops Daredevil from being shot. So it, this was just ridiculous across all all just the whole thing they were they were making fun of him because he's too big like physique wise to be daredevil yep. and all this sort of thing and, and even in the spotlight story we're going to talk about the the costume he ends up buying ends up coming back and playing a role in the in the uh the last two issues uh, of the year foggy decides that he's going to say that he's daredevil and then keep intimating that he's daredevil when Karen's around and Matt Murdock's like, please don't do this because bad things will happen. And then sure enough, bad things do in fact end up happening as a result. Uh, yes. We talked about this, an interesting note in issue 18, there shall come a gladiator. It, they noted that Stanley wrote the first seven pages of this book and then it got the rest of it was written by Denny O'Neill uh, because Stan had to leave on vacation. And I just, I just, I found that just absolutely just crazy that that was on the title page. They talked about the fact that, that here, here's this story that started with, with Stan Lee, but then somebody had to come in and pinch hit to finish off the story. It is interesting because they do that, I think, again, to kind of humanize the bullpen and just show yeah. these weird things. Because it's everything's kind of like a behind the scenes type of thing, right. but it also is interesting that you know this was, in a larger sense, what's going on all the time right now. You see Stan's credits decreasing. He's doing more of the showman stuff, where he's out at college campuses talking to people and whatever. And increasingly, it's Denny O'Neill and Roy Thomas, and all these folks who are starting to actually have to write the books, and and take over, the day to day. Marvel Universe. Uh, other stories, Matt Murdock is abducted by the owl and brought to an island hideout to defend a judge who previously sent him to prison. Uh, the dare, As Daredevil, he ends up saving the judge and flying them off the island on this giant mechanical bird just before the volcano on said island erupts. Yeah. You know, like you do. No. Now, for some reason, the owl doesn't want to just kill the judge. He wants to give him an unfair trial yes. before he kills him. Exactly. Because he's and, already and, got him there and, like, has kidnapped him and can do whatever he wants. 
Right. But, yeah. He, and, and then he goes and abducts Matt Murdock to be the defense, the, the, the judge's lawyer for this, because even though he's the best lawyer, he's not going to get a fair trial, so it doesn't really matter how good the lawyer yes. is. Because the owl is the judge. Yes. So, Exa- you know. Exactly. But, uh, uh, that doesn't so bode well. No. Uh, as you talked about the love triangle, Murdoch decides near the end of the year that he is, in fact, going to tell Karen exactly how he feels, even if it means hurting Foggy, though that never actually happens before the year ends. It just is something that he says to himself, and then it doesn't actually happen quite yet. And finally, Daredevil finishes off the year with a final battle with the recurring villains, the masked marauder and the gladiator and that is going to be our spotlight for this week so we will we won't talk too much about that just now as far as new powers toys and places two things that i noted here one apparently matt murdoch can lock pick he can actually hear he can actually hear the tumblers in in the lock so it's really easy for him to pick locks and apparently he's been doing some yoga breathing so that he can breathe underwater for longer periods of time, specifically after his bout with the uh, Submariner and nearly drowning last year. As far as some of the supporting characters, we mentioned Kazar, the Jungle Lord, and Zabu, the giant saber-toothed tiger. We see them early on. We have the Magor, the primitive man who is looks like he's going to end up fighting... Uh, Daredevil, but doesn't really ends up getting scared off. We have Slag, who is one of uh, the pirate men that uh, that kind of is helping slash not doing things uh, he's supposed to be doing that that the uh, head of the pirates Carnival Plunderer wants him to do. Um, so so he's kind of a supporting character we we see him i guess a little bit again next year uh when we when we see this character come back mentioned spider-man showed up we have spider-man j jonah jameson both end up being in an issue we have mr dunn who is the building landlord of the law office which is weird be and i will talk about this next week because that there's a different building landlord uh mm-hmm. as well and then judge why you, lewis why would you care about whether there's a different building landlord Dwayne? how could that possibly be relevant to the story um we we have we have we have <laughs> villains we could unmask and then we find out who they are and 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 names are changed to protect the innocent silly, i guess silliest thing all right and then we mentioned Judge Lewis, who is the judge who sentenced the owl to prison after the events in the third book, the Daredevil number three. And that's the uh, the, the judge that uh, Daredevil ends up saving. As far as villains, Parnival Plunderer is the head of the, the pirates and is actually Kazar's brother and is trying to steal the second half of a pendant that uh, Kazar has to get at this uh, really important treasure thing that is going to allow for him to take over the world. Uh, We have Feepers, who is part of an international crime syndicate. You have Dr. 
Scrag, who ends up inhabiting the body of a previous villain called the Ox. He was really smart, but he was in a puny body, so he put his smart brain in the Ox, who is this giant, powerful guy, and then goes and starts attacking Daredevil. We have the Masked Marauder and Gladiator. We have the Tri-Android Man, who is a constructed man powered by three other criminals called the Mangler, the Dancer, and the Brain. So those were some of the new villains that we saw across 1966 for Daredevil. Can I just note, not classics. This is Silver Surfer and Galactus. These are not. Let's just no, put it these, that way. Right? The, these are not. These are not. So I, Gladiator actually does go on to be a pretty cool character. I like Gladiator. You know, he's he's featured in the Daredevil TV show, the Netflix show. So we see him in that pretty regularly. But most of these guys, man, they are they are not great. So he was saving the good stuff for Fantastic Four at this point, I'm afraid. This week's Spotlight Story. All right, Dwayne. So, you've given us a little bit of an idea of who these stinky new villains for the year were and some of the supporting characters and other things. But you've also got a, a series of books we're going to talk a little bit in depth about. What do you got for us that you want to visit about from Daredevil this week? Well, this week I want to spotlight Daredevil issues number 22 and 23. This is the November 1966 issue and December 1966 issue. The November issue called The Tri-Man Lives and December's DD Goes Wild. I, lo I love this because this story is the culmination of a storyline that has played out through most of the year. The story opens with the Mass Marauder and Gladiator devising a plan to take down Daredevil so they may be appointed heads of the Magia, an international crime outfit in Europe. The Marauder has created a creature called the Tri-Android Man and uses his levitation ray. He abducts the Mangler, the Dancer, and the Brain to provide their distinct powers to this android. The plan goes the Daredevil and the Tri-Android will fight in Madison Square Garden, and when defeated publicly, those two will get, their, get the job. And to ensure that Daredevil actually shows to this event, they send Foggy Nelson tickets to the boxing match that is actually scheduled to take place there that night. So the Tri-Android Man arrives and throws the actual boxers out of the ring, and the Marauder, through this android, orders Daredevil to appear. Murdoch, working late with Karen Page, asks her to bring him to the arena while wearing the fake Daredevil suit Foggy bought earlier in the year so he can, quote, stall until the real Daredevil shows. She does, reluctantly, and he instantly loses her in the crowd, jumps in the ring, and proceeds to defeat the Triandroid. The Marauder, seeing all this going on in a closed-circuit camera, threatens to kill Foggy Nelson and Karen Page if Daredevil doesn't surrender. The Marauder then uses that levitation ray to return the Triandroid man to their lair, but in the process, Daredevil hitches a ride 
and ends up back in their lair as well. There's there he's briefly captured before breaking himself free as well as the three men that were powering the Android man. Those three decide, hey, we could still make some money if we take out Daredevil. So they each try and subdue Daredevil without success. So the gladiator gets frustrated and decides to take matters into his own hands. If this isn't all crazy enough, it gets better. The masked marauder, while gladiator and Daredevil are squaring off, contacts the magia and gets coordinates for a Roman Colosseum movie set where the heads of all the major crime syndicates are meeting and sends the gladiator and daredevil there so this spectacle of a battle can be witnessed again assuming gladiator wins they get they get to become the heads of this outfit once there gladiator and daredevil square off until the daredevil's blades he's got these splinting blades inadvertently cuts open a nearby lion cage that just happens to have a lion still inside. Daredevil gets between the gladiator and the lion and deftly maneuvers it back into another cage. It is at this point then gladiator refuses to keep fighting Daredevil any longer since the former has just saved his life. The story ends with the Marauder not becoming the next leader of the Magia and vowing revenge on Daredevil, Gladiator getting admitted to the Magia, and Daredevil leaving this fake arena with no money, no other clothes, and no way to get back to New York. That is your recap for the end of 1966 for The Man Without Fear. Dan, this was, this was a crazy couple books but i just i absolutely loved it all right yeah it's it's interesting that we end another year with daredevil like just in the wilderness like he's lost he's off and running he's got no idea what's going on next um these books were just weird and why an entire criminal organization would go yeah, I guess this is as good a way to choose a leader as any type of thing. There's a lot of plot situations best not explored too deeply here. But it was fun. And there's a lot going on, and it's cool stuff. So I think yep. that it's interesting you went with the double the double story for the, uh, the spotlight. Yeah, to me, this felt like a very comic book story, right? It just... There mm -hmm. is just absolute pandemonium going on and it all it all makes sense insofar as like I I I just loved the fact that there was this payoff at the end of the year for reading the entire year. We had stories where the Marauder was going after Daredevil. We had Gladiator going after Daredevil. And then at this end of the year, we had them both teaming up to try and take on the daredevil yep. and it just i i just i actually loved it i love the fact that we had the callback to the freaking foggy costume that he bought as a way to try and you know stall uh, for the real daredevil to show up it was just yep. it it was it was just 
it's 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 like in the MCU where they give you those callbacks to things that you've seen in the previous movies, and it just makes you feel like, oh, this is this is why I watch all this stuff because I get to see and understand something that happens later on, and it just I love it. That idea of being in the in club is huge with comic it is, books, and it always has been. It really is. It is. I also loved um, the fact that with now, I really have always kind of enjoyed the character of the gladiator. And I like the fact that in here you start to get that idea that he is one of those criminals with a code type of people who there's a, there's a certain sense of fairness about him and the like, he's not just your, your standard criminal. And that'll continue over the years, you know, that we, we find out new stuff about him and everything. I like the fact that they continue to play with different ways to sort of mess up uh, Foggy and and uh, and Matt and this whole love triangle, uh, it's it gets goofier and goofier and, and more ridiculous all the time. But it's also yes. kind of fun. Yeah. the The other thing I will I I want to specifically call out is in book twenty three. So these were the twenty two and twenty three. These were both uh, art done was was done by Gene Colan. And book 23 starts with two full-page panels of Daredevil in the ring at Madison Square Garden and a toppled-over tri-android man at the, in the ring with him. And I loved it because, according to the editor's note in there, they couldn't decide which of these two full-page panels to lead off book 23 with. So they decided to use both of them back to back. And I just, I absolutely loved it. It was great. You know, there was one that was kind of at, at, at ring level. And then there was this overhead shot for the other one. And, and they, they looked different, but they both looked really cool in their own way. And I'm, and I really love the fact that both of them ended up in this book. That is pretty cool. And that is another thing that as we move along, Gene Colan and that love he has for making everything big results in all of these stories with huge panels at the start and tiny panels trying to frantically finish out the story at the end. So that's perfect that he that he would make, you know, if, if Colan had his choice, this would be 22 pages of full, fa- full page spreads, like 22 panel comic book. But uh, that is not allowed, so then they have to squeeze them a little bit. All right, Dan, we've talked at great detail about 1966 and comics at Marvel for our man Daredevil. What is what do you think is the takeaway this year? This week's takeaway. You know, I think that 1966 in comic books had a lot in common with, say, 2019 in comic book movies that this was a point at which everything had gone so well for a few years that folks started to just expect it was always going to be this way and started to almost not appreciate what they had at a certain point. Like, where we're at with the Fantastic Four, with the Galactus storyline this year, where we're at with Spider-Man, is a height that is difficult to sustain. 
And it's also a height that starts to bring you attention from other people. Where comics were getting good enough that other folks were going to poke their nose in. What happened in the 60s was the Batman TV show came out. And we had camp. And we had a lot of people looking at comics who looked at them as just being made for kids. And a lot of people who were really invested in comic books desperately wanted them to be what, what I would put in quotation marks as more. So they're like, no, comics, we don't want comics to be fun and be, you know, laughed at. These are serious pieces of art that need to be appreciated. And so the Batman TV show, not just then, but really through most of, you know, I was a, a kid wandering out and talking comics with people in the late 70s and the 80s. Even then, the Batman TV show was reviled, Batman 66, as this show that had really done almost as much damage to comic books as Frederick Wortham had, right? I think a lot of that perception has changed now. But when you look at the modern context, we again have this idea in the, the post-Endgame world where comic book movies for the last few years have not been as well received as Endgame. What Batman brought was this idea of sort of awareness and accessibility of superheroes to a much greater audience than what had been there before. And Endgame, sure. the Marvel Cinematic Universe did the same thing. Both Marvel and back then and Marvel now, I think, tried to then springboard off that. Say, you know, we want to make this available to new groups. We want to work off this to take comic books to another level of profitability and accessibility and everything else. And a lot of folks who were used to comics the way they were rebelled against that. Some of the yeah. same kinds of problems that we had in the 60s with people writing in and just being incensed about the changes that DC made to Batman after Batmania started, after the TV show, where they started bringing in some of the campier elements to make the comics more like the, uh, the show. You see the same thing in that when comics started to bring in some of the characters and some of the ideas from the MCU, which was a much different, sort of more diverse, more accessible kind of, of format, people really got a little bit upset about it. And it just goes to show it's all very cyclical. That every time comic books start to become popular, there is a certain urge to retrench. And we have to find a way to stop that. Because really, comics as a medium are something that can span so many different styles and genres and everything. I just wish that it didn't end up this way. But my takeaway is that as much as things change, they say the same. So the same, the same thing that happened in 1967 and 68 that we're going to see is what then happened in 93 and 94 and what had happened you know, with the movies leading up into last week's Madam Web, which I went to, went with my son, it is not a good movie, dear listeners. 
But it is not the worst comic book movie ever made. I have watched the Justice League movie from the 90s with, with like, ice and fire. I have watched the original Captain America movies. This is nowhere near that. It's it's a solidly not good movie. And and I actually was fine with it. Um, but... But I think it is getting it is getting ugly out there for comic book culture. So if we're comic fans, this is almost the time when you really just want to support this stuff, because uh, there's enough people out there taking swings. We don't need to do it too. That's going to put a wrap on this week's show. We'd like to thank you for joining us. If you're new to the podcast, please consider subscribing on your podcast player of choice. That way you'll get each new episode as soon as it's released. If you've already subscribed, we'd appreciate it if you'd share the show via social media or leave us a review. That will help new listeners find the show much easier. Whether you're new to the podcast or you've been with us from the beginning, we'd love to get your thoughts about this week's show. You can send those to us via email at comments at comicsovertime.com or via Twitter or Blue Sky. We're at Comics Overtime there. Until next week, take care, everybody.